Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of information technology and cybersecurity professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider becoming a Security Ledger podcast sponsor. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our regular podcast, which features news, analysis, and discussion of the most important security topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast that highlights your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Hey, welcome back to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode, we're speaking with independent security researcher and IoT hacker, Dennis Giza. Dennis is one of the foremost researchers exploring the security of connected devices, in particular, robot vacuum cleaners. I really wanted to talk to Dennis because one of the things that I'm really interested in and focused on these days is the intersection between security research and what I consider to be the larger project of smart device liberation as software has wormed its way into pretty much every type of modern appliance. Consumers have benefited from amazing features, but software and always-on internet connectivity have also enabled abusive practices, such as mass commercial surveillance of consumers and de facto monopolies on things like service and repair. As Dennis notes in this podcast, even innocuous objects like robot vacuum cleaners are now bristling with cameras, microphones, and other sensors. Ostensibly, this is to enable features such as voice recognition and better navigation, but those sensors are a two-way street. A microphone lets us talk to our robot vacuum cleaners, but it also lets our robot vacuum cleaners listen to whatever we might happen to be saying. Dennis's work isn't so much about disabling these surveillance features as liberating the devices and the data they collect from the grips of manufacturers and giving it to the owners whose data is, is to begin with. To start off our conversation, I asked Dennis to talk about how he got interested in hacking stuff. Like most of the prominent security researchers I've spoken with over the years, he told me that his curiosity about how things worked blossomed at a young age. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is another episode of the Security Ledger podcast, and we're in the studio today talking with Dennis Giza. Dennis, welcome to Security Ledger podcast. Okay, I can be here. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you here. So, Dennis, you are a noted and celebrated device hacker who is also really done some pretty amazing work around consumer devices and IoT. For our listeners, Dennis, who aren't familiar with you, just tell us a little bit about who you are and also like your journey into cyber. Yeah. So I'm a security researcher in a way. So I do, it started as my hobby, but it's now it's my day-to-day -day business. I have a physics and electrical engineering background. So I went to Germany like for school was also in Boston, took like my cybersecurity degree there. And what I do daily is to basically disassemble and hack devices, which are in some way or form connected to the internet. It can be cameras, this can be smart toilet seats, this can be vacuum robots, which are my specialty. This can be literally everything, which is, has power and is connected to something. So I'm very curious about things. 
And the way how, how I generally started with all the hacking stuff was like when I was a kid, I was like six or seven years old, I had a computer and had some software on it, which was a trial version and didn't have internet. It, as a kid, you have a lot of time. And so I started to open with a, a hex editor, like some files and mess with them around and was able after lots of work uh, to make it a full version. And this was like my first aha moment. And since then, I'm basically looking at interesting things. This can be also like locks and you like lock picking everything, which is security related where people build something to keep one out that kind of attracts me to get get in. Were your parents like in technology or engineers? My parents were like more like in business and physics with technology, but less. So my dad was like doing some IT stuff. So he brought me like old computers from work, which were way older than I was. So this was a a good thing to play around. And so I learned like all the technologies from zero, basically. So I, it, looked, it, it took a lot of time. And so I had some graphical interface in, in my life. I was like working with DOS. It was working with Linux. So okay. One of the questions I love asking folks like Dennis is how they approach a new challenge, like hacking a robot vacuum cleaner. That's because the, their answers to those questions have a lot of clues for companies about where the security risks in their devices are and how best to harden them against attacks. So here's what Dennis had to say when I asked him about how he went about hacking robot vacuum cleaners. If you were talking to someone who was maybe new to this topic, interested in doing security research into Internet of Things devices, what would your advice to them be? And what's your approach as you look at a new IoT device? Like what, where to, how to approach it from a security standpoint? Devices are extremely interesting from, if you think about that, they are like some device in your home, which has access to particular data, which has cameras, which can do control things in your home. It's connected to the internet and you don't see the networkings in contrast like you have a Macbook or like a desktop where you can click around things. It's like, so it's completely opaque for you to you. And these kind of devices become cheaper and cheaper all the time, right? Last week we had, or this week we had actually Amazon, Cyber Monday and like Friday and everything. And lots of connected devices. And this can be literally everything. I saw light bulbs was where one of the first things which I saw at some point would make sense. But nowadays it's even the trash cans are internet connected, right? And from, from, from that aspect, because it's like everywhere around us, the one of the things which I'm always asking myself, hey, okay, so how did they do it? So I try to get the device, I try to disassemble it and try to see, okay, how is it done? And so for someone who starts also like from nothing was interested in the topic, this is like most of the time the case where you know, you just need to spawn out a bit of the of getting a device and assemble it and look into it, or you might find sources with pictures from inside, but most of the time you want to touch, touch a device. And the, the cool thing with that is typically as soon as you touch a device, and there's only very rare cases where you don't get success, right? But it eats more time. That's the, that's a disadvantage of that. Many people think it's like a nine to five job, but most of the time you need to be reading a lot of things and just play around takes forever. You're best known, Dennis, as the guy who hacks robotic vacuum cleaners. Of course, robot vacuum cleaners are just another IoT device, but how did you get specifically interested in robot vacuums? And how far back does this go with you? How how long have you been looking at this particular category of IoT device? Heck no, lawnmowers too, because lawnmowers are like vacuum robots, but just with knives. Just a robot vacuum with teeth, basically. Yeah. That's the just, 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 just a little bit bigger. But actually, surprisingly, if I look at my security kind of career, um, it, the vacuum thing. So I started uh, in 2006 and 2017. And first, I had to completely dumb vacuum robot, which was just like a random ball driving around and doing nothing. 
But at some point I saw some ads of where vendors said, oh yeah, we have this cool technology like LiDAR. We have free processors. We have this very powerful hardware. I was looking in forums and everything. People tried to install like uh, custom sound packages on them, but no one had really success. And I was like wondering, okay, what's the hype in there? This was like a completely new field, but no one touched it before. So I think it was lucky on that. And then we got one of these devices and started to assemble it, looked at it, tried to figure out like, hey, can I do something to that in sense of get access? One thing which is helpful to, to me is that we use the same processor of like devices which I had before, like something like a Raspberry Pi like device. So I had some experience with that. This was very helpful. And yeah, and in the end of the day, I used like aluminum foil to, uh, aluminum foil, like how you can say, to get under one of the chips shorted and basically do a, a port injection. And with some more tricks, I had like root access. And this was my first talk at the CCC and the cross communication congress in Germany in 2007. And then from there is, okay, we bring out new products. And then I looked like, okay, how we, how did we develop to the same things still work? Because the, the whole robot market obviously develops, like they started with just dumb robots, then we had lighter, then we had at some point, no cameras, then mopping functions. Now we have microphones. So it's like a developing market, which kind of keeps giving on the in a particular way. So it's always something new. And that, that kind of keeps me going. Now I have a think collection of 60 robots, which is both vacuum robots and lawnmowers. But yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's like an addiction in a way. Your carpets must like be a, very clean. I have one floor, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I only use one of them, by the way. So the others are like in the shelf or like for experiments. And through all this development, yeah. one thing is I didn't realize how much effort it would be, but I maintain a kind of like a software or like information for people to look at things. And I get every day between like 1500 requests from people where, okay, they have like, this and this robot, they want to kind of know, okay, um, can you root it? What kind of data is it saving? Or I get like requests from people and this is important for you in a way where the device stopped working after one year and two months. So exactly out of the warranty and I, it's a way to figure out like what's going on with this device and flexible and yeah, and all, all the kind of things, right? I get completely random requests from people which don't have rooted devices, but typically help people with, with, which have rooted devices. But I get also nowadays a lot of requests from people, from normal consumers, which said, hey, I tried to talk to, to, to the vendor to get this thing repaired and they just ignored me. Did you see that before? Is there anything I can do to test and everything? Which is it's a little bit tricky in the sense of actually talk to normal, non-technical persons because we have a it's less understanding of our mission in a way, but I try to help as much as I can. But the life uh, of an uh, open source maintainer is difficult. It doesn't pay well, it doesn't pay at all. What do these vacuums look like under the hood? You mentioned Raspberry Pi and like from a hardware and software perspective, do you see a lot of similarities between different makes and models of vacuum cleaners or are they all bespoke? Okay. So all of them are similar with some companies which are slightly different, like iRobot in particular. But um, most of the robots, they more or less using, they have a, a quad core or like octa core CPU, like an ARM CPU, the standard thing. They have like between 512 to 2 gigabyte or 4 gigabyte of RAM and some flash storage, which can differ a little bit. And surprisingly, most of the companies, if you look like, for example, Roborock, this was like one of the first ones we started with, the hardware didn't change much in the last five years or five or six years. And this is more or less the case for, for all companies. So that's one of the reasons why one of the robot companies, you know, all of them in a particular way. And when I was giving like my talk this year, I was able to basically route four different companies, right? So Roborock, Dreamy, which is like a US company, Shock Robots and Xiaomi, obviously. So 
you can apply the same kind of vulnerabilities to multiple of them. Software-wise, they run most of the time on Linux and WRT. All of the companies use Chinese factory chips. And many companies, even if they have different names, they are fabulous manufacturers. So they buy IP cores from some companies, they put them together on a chip and manufacture the chip. And so in most cases, if you find like one vulnerability in one, like with the IP cores, you can for it from many things. The tricky part is to disclose that one. One of the big messages that Dennis has for all of us and that we should all keep in mind is that manufacturers like the ones that make robot vacuum cleaners are engaged in a kind of deception. Namely, they foist new models of their vacuums on the marketplace that are nearly identical under the hood to previous models. The changes in new robot vacuum models is almost entirely software-based. The hardware is almost identical to previous versions. In this part of the conversation, we talk about that. That discussion prompted me to ask Dennis what he thought the actual business model of robot vacuum cleaner makers is. And you mentioned to me that for consumers, often if you're buying the latest model of whatever robot vacuum, in all likelihood, that is the same hardware as the earlier model. What's changed is just the software features that they've delivered on it. Maybe some new sensors or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And it quite often the case, as soon as the product is like released and it's in the market and they started to optimize the software, they realize, okay, we can cut down a little bit on like RAM on planet and just get away with less. But it's like a standard thing, which you see also for other devices. I see it also for Amazon Echoes, which are also rooted and hacked. It's one of the ways how companies can, you know, generate income because obviously as soon as they sell to the vacuum robot, they got your money and they don't earn money with you anymore. So basically from there on you're like a cost. So what we try to do is basically release like a new model, which kind of is only just changed a little bit, but looks like completely new from like a consumer perspective and with new features so for obviously new price. So they get the money again. While if you look under the hood, it's basically mostly software changes, which they could have ported to all the devices, but they have obviously no financial interest to do that. It's funny because when you look on your, on the list of all the robots, vacuum robots you've worked on going back, whatever it is now, eight years, right? So many of them are end of support, end of life, EOS, EOL which means that the vendor has stopped supporting issuing software updates, including security patches for these devices, stop yeah. issuing software updates. Two questions. First of all, as a vacuum owner, what does it mean practically when they EOL the device in terms of maintaining it, patching it? What does that really mean as the vacuum owner when the <laughs> manufacturer has ended support? And what are your options at that point? One, one thing which I didn't mention before, but um, most of the robots nowadays are based on Ubuntu 14.04. So the kernels are extremely old. And this part of the reason is many of the companies established from like an open source software, which they got inspired of, let's say so. And that software was whoever developed the software initially, they stopped the development like in 2016 or so. And it, it requires particular libraries and some other stuff. So it only runs on our Ubuntu 14.04. The kernel versions are like, massively old, even for new devices. If you buy today one, uh, it still has the kernel version from you know, about four or five years ago. Vulnerability device, it's a tricky question because typically those devices don't expose too many interfaces. If you look at the threat model of like making robots or like IoT device typically nowadays, um, it's more like either you have local attacks or someone is in your local network or the vendor gets hacked and then you're screwed no matter what. But one thing which is important for why you want to have firmware updates is that they 
find quirks like in navigation, for example, and we see that's quite often with baking robots, but they you know, fix their machine learning model, they fix a couple of random things where the road behaves weirdly. And so if you don't get firmware updates, then obviously you don't get them. The same cases uh, for if they add features. And for example, the first generation of Xiaomi robots, they couldn't save the map. So we could see the map, but they explored the apartment every time again, every time they were running through. And then with one of the, the um, a year after that, they introduced the renewal models, actually. Saving, that we could save the map so that you could just point to the robot and it just goes there. But the hardware for both of these robots, which were released, is exactly the same. We have just a different case, but we never backported like the feature back. I have no questions like, hey, uh, from like, um, a perspective of the owner, hey, do I spend $600 again for basically the same product in a different case with some software features on? In the ideal case, we would export the same thing if the hardware supports it, but obviously we drop the support update, typically a year after two years, something like that. Well, what is the business model of these robot vacuum makers as you understand it? Is it harvesting data from folks' homes and reselling it? Or what's going on? Why are they adding all these cameras and mics to floor vacuums? There's two things. So one thing is the so evolution-wise, you had to very, very dumb robots like back then, like before 2016, which had like bumper sensors, maybe some infrared sensors, where we were bumping everywhere and we were driving around a little bit randomly. And then at some point, people figured out that you can build a lighter, like like laser, which kind of rotates the tower in the back over there, this tower thing. But you can build it fairly cheaply. So a lot of robots started to get lighter tower, but they used back then primarily ultrasonic sensors for the front. So to detect like objects on the front. And it's looking if you just assemble it, it reminds me a little bit of these kids' robot sets, which you could buy like a couple of years ago, where you put like a raspberry pi into it, you put some tires on it, you put like a camera. And like have this cheap ultrasonic sensor, but basically it was a nice package, but it was basically the same hardware. Back when I, we were like, how, so we have something driving around in your home, how can we get cool data? And lighter, like data is not as, it's, it's a map of your apartment, okay, but it would be cooler to have some more impactful thing. And so we tried to use the ultrasonic sensor as a microphone, because what most people don't know is you can, in most cases, you can use any speaker also as a microphone. So there's ways how you can mess with, if you have them plugged in your computer, you can, there's particular ways how you can abuse them as microphones, basically, to, to the smooth people. But it, it didn't work back then. At some point, we started like, to evolve more. We got the cameras. Some companies figured out it's like uh, lighter is too expensive. So cameras cost only half of that. So they tried to use cameras. But mm-hmm. also, uh, since a lot of people got making robots, there was like the case where, you know, um, if you look on Reddit, there's a lot, we were like a lot of robots where the robots were driving through dog poo and spreading it out there through the whole apartment. And which was like a, I <laughs> yeah. And so it's a lot of companies started like to use like the cameras <laughs> for to detect that. And one thing which I noticed is that it's not necessarily what the companies actually develop this kind of things, but the chip vendors like in Rockchip or Qualcomm, they have like use cases for their chips that they sell. And at some point we have like integration of the cameras and integration of other things. And then that's down into the companies, which is gonna, and yeah. And from there, nowadays we have microphones for like smart speakers in a way. So as robots are like smart speakers, you can tell, hey, go there and do the clean screen. What's the business, what, what do you think the business model vacuum makers? And yeah. It depends. I think in China, it's primarily, they want to sell the hardware. So they, they primarily kind of business models like selling the hardware. For US companies, and especially I think for iRobot, it's slightly different. They have their CEO at some point said, hey, yeah, we don't earn that much money with hardware, but 
you can sell, you know, map data of users to like uh, realtor companies, to whoever. And the development of cameras, you have the cases where we use AI machine learning already. So why not use AI machine learning to detect more things in the apartment? And Vince rumors, what I, what I read online from journalists and such like random Reddit users, where one of the uh, use cases why Amazon wants to buy a robot, I think it's not true yet, but they're still in the process of buying it, is that we can connect it to get, get the data, the user data, basically. But that's still the main primary worth Spy of the company. On, okay. One of the things that you're really interested in is also these questions around repair and serviceability and how to liberate hardware so that users can continue to maintain and update it and in your own spirit, tweak it, modify it, adjust it to their own desires and likes. Mm -hmm. And you talk about jailbreaking these devices so that you can basically keep supporting them. Talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit. And also, have you had conversations with OEMs about that idea? Hey, users should be able to jailbreak these, and keep using them, even after you've decided to walk away from them. Yeah. My primary mission with all of the IoT devices which I analyze is not necessarily well, I mean, find bugs. I mean, obviously, I find bugs that to disconnect from the cloud because I don't necessarily trust the vendors. And, and it doesn't matter if they're like in China, if they're in America, yeah. but if I'm in, like, it just it doesn't make a big difference yeah. like, from like a trust perspective. Um, Keep them from and, uploading your data basically to it, the cloud, too. Right? Yeah. Uh, but not only that, but the thing is, the there's companies which get bankrupt. We were like a couple of cases where the company went out of business and then they had to basically, you know, garbage. Or we made a mistake where they didn't extend certificates, which I tried to use to get the jailbreak with different methods. Let's say it's not a very well-paying thing because I, I, over the time I realized, or like people told me like, Hey, I could have made like $10,000, $100,000 with the vulnerabilities in the sense of like by reporting them to background. The thing is most of the time I give presentations about how to root your jailbreak your devices. The vendors learn at the same point from this vulnerability as the people who are sitting in the talk. Because I don't tell them the vendors before that. But otherwise, they could just push a firmware update and just would defeat the purpose. But yeah, that's some primary things with this, this to disconnect the cloud and to find ways. And I was talking to many, many vendors uh, and I was invited by Xiaomi multiple times to China. I was in China, in Beijing. I was in um, um, Shenzhen. Um, I was talking to Roborock with the CEO personally. I was talking to the vice CEO of Xiaomi. So I had the conversations back then. And this was like in 2018, actually. And so I told like the, the guy from Roborock, Hey, I had a meeting with all the engineers and I was presenting them how I got in and we were like, oh, God. and I told them like, Hey, look, the thing is pe people are not really interested in going through a lot of pain to grow, to hack your devices. The primary, primarily goal is to, you know, run them locally and run the like, home assistant or if any other personal smart home device, uh, smart home thing. And if you have a way to run the devices local, like locally only, and this would have the same functionality, then people like me wouldn't have any interest or like not much interest like to find, to root you, your devices and to, to hack that. Back then they promised me like, yeah, we will have, have a method at some point, but the users can run it locally. The problem is that never came. I continue my mission basically because it's cloud mandatory basically. And as long as that's the case and like I continue with that. I wouldn't say it's like necessarily a condition, but uh, a lot of vendors, we just don't understand like what, what drives us, right? In a way, hey, okay, it's great that you have this cloud and it's great that you have this weird cloud functionality, but let's say the trust is not there. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Chinese company or a US company, it's just that we want to run this stuff like autonomously, without relying like, hey, this thing doesn't work with your cloud. AWS breaks from time to time, right? Or like some other cloud systems break from time to time. And then people have to travel with like IoT devices because we didn't run anymore. 
just connect them. They, Bounty they, programs and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So Xiaomi does it. It doesn't do it necessarily, but there's like a lot of companies which do that. Again, mm -hmm. the problem is I don't have an incentive. I have a financial incentive to submit it to get like $10,000 for a buck. But again, if I submit it, then you bounce, you know, like a, um, you can talk about it like for three months or so, but you can't release it for a particular thing. And then by the time you can talk about it, they push already like an OTA update and basically locked you out. So it's like waste a lot of money by buying robots in the first place and not, sub not submitting bugs. But that's just like the mission, I guess. That's just the way how it is. One of the strangest observations Dennis had was that his work hacking robot vacuum cleaners actually serves as a kind of PR for them to the point that one robot vacuum maker complained to him after his talk at a conference that he wasn't hacking their hardware. The idea, as Dennis sees it, is that his post promoting jailbreaks for robot vacuums that let people protect their data or modify the device are kind of unsanctioned features for those vacuums that attract people and boost sales, more even than if the OEM itself was privacy-centric from the start. So generally, I think the, the members understand that most people are wanting to have privacy, but I think we also understand that the group which is understanding what how privacy works and that kind of, where privacy is very, very important. It's like very, very small. Little Rock sells like millions of baking robots. And I think uh, for, in our community, people which have rooted this device, I think they're around 40, 45,000 nowadays, right? So it's like compared to, to the broad mass of people who have devices, it's not that, that big. And we're more worried about uh, people or like other companies, other Chinese companies basically stealing the IP intellectual property. So that's why we're locking, lock things down. And along that, I, I noticed after this DEFCON, that vendors are very slow fixing things. So some stuff is like still open. And I think that's because it's for them, it's a money. So basically by us hacking their devices and basically developing a software for, for them to run locally, that's for them like a free advertisement so that people buy exactly these devices. And that's a fun fact. After my talk in, it was in Germany, DEFCON, for the cost communication camp, which is like a camping site. And there was one vendor which was like the subcontractor of Shark Robot, which came to me and complained that I didn't hack them because it's like a free advertisement, basically. It's hey, so unfair, but like Roborock, Xiaomi, Dreamy, and Back they up. get all the, the free advertisements. And not only that, well, no. it's like a selling point for it. For officially, we can't say that, but it's a selling point, obviously, but you can't technically make them privacy secure in a way. And they realized that, I mean, hey, it's so unfair. They sell like 10,000 of devices just because of you guys. They could always add that as a feature if they wanted, but let's not get crazy. Yeah, um, we actually have. So not Jack Robot itself, but the subcontractor, very have their own devices. The problem yeah. is it's marketing-wise, but it's publicity-wise, it's office value in a way. If people hack something, it's, hey, you can use this now for some cool thing. As yeah. the company, you... No one talks about the company just because of the feature, but if some hackers give a target they've gone, hey, I'll look at this list people who, how badly we implemented it. And now you can use the device for something that gets more attraction than yeah. a company, which is like privacy away from the beginning. Which brings us to the final question I asked Dennis, which is what some of the vacuum hackers are doing with their devices once they've jailbroken them. Dennis's response is interesting. And it hints, I think, at the kind of pent up creativity and market demands that are festering in the consumer marketplace right now. This is creativity that would be unleashed if manufacturers were required to give device owners the option of being able to jailbreak or tinker with their own property. So you mentioned all the folks who message you and contact you based on your research. 
what are the customers out there using these devices looking to do with them that they're coming to you and saying, I need help rooting it, or could you help me out? What are the types of things that they are interested in doing with their vacuum? So many people, they just want to have privacy and to run it with their own local software. So they have a home automation already set up for the blinds or the other, for a lot of other things. So one of the standard examples that I get quite often is that people, as soon as they need the apartment, the, the smart home system sees it according like, to the phone is not there anymore. So no one is home and they run the vacuum automatically and they come back home when the apartment is clean. Other cases is that people want to add custom soundbox to them, some GLaDOS from PhotoG soundbox, which the vendors don't supply, obviously, or some other stuff. So you see a lot of YouTube videos of this. Actually, someone has written like a tool, which is called Outer. Where if the robot hits something, it would shout out. <laughs> so that, that was a huge thing. But I got also interestingly like cases from people who are architects and want to create like a from an empty apartment like a map to kind of like a precise thing. The lighter is also very precise, right? So you have a device which is costs a couple hundred bucks. You just clean the apartment once with that, and you have a map basically. So how to, how to pull up the map? And one thing which I got recently, there were like some researchers which looked into fall detection for senior citizens, right? We'll there were some cameras and if they clean around every day, they might see the tech that the people, where the person's lying on the floor. And there happened like lots of cases where people were lying on the floor for days, still alive. Right. And people look into fall detection like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a broad kind of case of people who want to do that. And most of the time, it's, they just want to have control over the device. So that's a huge driving factor. Like pro-social features, right? Yeah. Senior file detection or apartment mapping. Like this thing can help me do things that I need to do apart from what it was designed to do. And it's mine. So I should be able to tell it to do that. Yeah. It can do it definitely. So the thing is, was powerful enough to do a lot of things. The question I get is, do you want to have that in the sense of, I know you remember Blinkhead or Amazon, but some the camera products had like a fall detection for seniors already integrated because you have a camera. So I mean, from machine learning models on them and, you know, detect them. But again, do you want to have that in your house, which the camera shoots inside and detects things? In the off chance it catches you falling, the rest of the time it's just spying on everything in your apartment and telling Amazon yeah. about it, right? Um, and not only that, but I mean, so, so, so when I was in Australia, I would actually like uh, talk to some people like from law enforcement, like, hey, can do this and or, like what kind of data is stored on that because the thing is if the device is not rooted then you don't have access to like the, the data and it goes to china and then obviously it's like US, US, us or like australian law enforcement the european law enforcement wants to get data most of the time the companies just tell them to consent because nowadays the device have like hardware security features it's like extremely difficult for like forensic people to pull data because it's encrypted so you need to be also be careful we just have self-destruct mechanisms yeah. and stuff and yeah so i get this question i got after my DevCon talk, actually, like someone came to me from one of the free letter organizations in the US and asked me like, hey, do you think we can use the vacuum road and the camera to find people? And I was like, huh? Yeah, lots of people in China have them, right? Like, yeah. some of the robots have machine learning models for face detection for whatever reason. So some non-models yes. have that. So that they detect yes. if someone wants to steal it, if it's not the yes. owner. But yeah, I, I feel confident somewhere in an office park in, in Virginia, someone is working on this problem. This is always like a problem also for me, for me, for my website, for example, where you can download a custom firmware, you get like the firmware, right? So everyone who downloads the firmware can look for more vulnerabilities and see the best things which are remotely. And it's like always a double-edged sword because at one time you help people to make the device more disconnection from cloud. 
But on the other side, you give a lot of people access to like to the robot so we can snoop around if there's anything else which could be yeah, abuse for spinal people. Final, final question. And this, I'm involved in the right to repair movement. Um, what do you think the actual useful life of a, of a robot vacuum is? Totally, if we were to take off the software end of life, the kind of imposed death by the manufacturer, how long could you keep these devices running and operating? What is their useful life, in your opinion? And what would need to happen in order for people to use them for their full useful life? So I, I can more or less answer this question very precisely. I can give you an at least time. And so devices which were, which we initially rooted like in, back in 2016, 2017, the first generation of Xiaomi robots, they were to still today totally fine. The biggest thing which you get with time is like that the battery kind of gets weaker, but you can just replace the battery. Surprisingly, like to lose Rossmann, it's like just unscrew five screws. You need to break the warranty seal, but you just can swap the battery because the battery packs, which we use today, are the same which we used years ago. So you can just yeah. swap them very easily. And these devices are surprisingly easy to repair if the parts are available. So it's a, it's a device which can probably look like 10 years or more. Well, it's potentially like the biggest kind of aspect, but other than that, uh, I wouldn't see like any big parts which would break, like if it falls on the stair or something. So the useful life, you can run from, I, I would assume probably it's 10 years, maybe more. At some point you run into the issue that, by the way, if you buy a device today, uh, like a vacuum robot, you will run into an issue at least in uh, 2038. That's probably the match for many devices you can buy today. Uh, the Unix timestamps run out. So the kernels are that we don't support only 32 bits of time. And with the time started in 1970 and the end time basically where you overflow again back to 1970s and at some date in uh, 2038. <laughs> Because we don't get, we get finger updates, we would definitely by then we will be dead in the sense that they will get complete, that they will be back in 2038. Uh, sorry, 1970. Wow. Uh, it wasn't Y2K, like, it was Y2038. We got it wrong. Yeah, we'll see if it's for, for a lot of devices and for a lot of products and for a lot of software, which will, will get really confused in 2038. But yeah, I think, like I said, this device is surprisingly easy to repair. The problem which you run into, I mean, this is like, uh, I, I love to, I always love to watch like Louis Rothman's videos, like when he was in New York and got MacBooks. The MacBook is like way more expensive than a vacuum robot. Exactly. I mean, vacuum robots here you can buy for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars. And then the question is like, okay, I mean, in theory you could repair it, but isn't the product which, I mean, is financially viable to get spare parts for and like pay someone to repair it. So it's like, yeah. Gets over an economical question. Dennis, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Security Ledger podcast and talking to us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me here. Where can people see you talk? When are you going to be uh, speaking next? So I submitted to talk to the Cost Communication Congress, which is end of the year. I don't know yet if it's been got Germany. accepted. In Germany. Yeah. I submitted a couple more talks. So CCC is typically the Cost Communication Congress. They release the videos very quickly. For some other venues, it's a little bit slower. You find most of the videos online or have also on my website with all the other materials. So I have the talk list. But if people have questions, you can just hit me up. My ticket was a little bit longer. It depends on what the question is to answer because I get so many. But I'm always happy to talk to people, especially as researchers. So I feel people are interested in doing what they are more than happy to talk to. And we will provide your contact information when we post the podcast. All right, Dennis Gisa, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us. And uh, we'll, we'll do this again, okay?
Sure. So that brings to an end this episode of the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks to Dennis Giza for coming in and talking to us about his work on robot vacuum cleaners. Keep an eye on your feed. We've got more Security Ledger podcast episodes scheduled for 2024. More great interviews coming up. And I look forward to seeing you all again. Mm-hmm.